Okay, so we are continuing our consideration of the hypostatic union this evening. Um, to remind you of where we are, uh, we last week we reviewed James White's three-point biblical argument for the doctrine of the Trinity. Um, again, those points were point number one, there is one and only one God, eternal, immutable. Point number two, there are three eternal persons described in Scripture, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. These persons are never identified with one another. That is, they are carefully differentiated as persons. And then point number three, and this was really the point that we were most focusing on and will continue to focus on tonight, uh, point number three was the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are identified as being fully deity. That is, the Bible teaches the deity of Christ and the deity of the Holy Spirit. And of course, we're just considering the deity of Christ right now. Um, that being said, um, let's read the section of the confession that we're covering right now. Um, and then we'll pick up where we left off with our proof text for the deity of Christ. Um, where we're at in the confession, it is chapter 8, section 2. Chapter 8, section 2. It reads, The Son of God, the second person of the Holy Trinity, is truly and eternally God. He is the brightness of the Father's glory, the same in substance and equal with Him. He made the world and sustains and governs everything He has made. When the fullness of time came, He took upon Himself human nature with all the essential properties and common weaknesses of it, but without sin. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary. The Holy Spirit came down upon her, and the power of the Most High overshadowed her. Thus he was born of a woman from the tribe of Judah, a descendant of Abraham and David in fulfillment of the Scriptures. Two whole, perfect, and distinct natures were inseparably joined together in one person without converting one into the other or mixing them together to produce a different or blended nature. This person is truly God and truly man, yet one Christ, the only mediator between God and humanity. So where we left off last week, we were in Luke. Again, we're going through with proof text for the deity of Christ. Um, <clears throat> we left off in Luke chapter 7, verses 41 through 50. And I'll go ahead and tell you before we read this text, the reason it's a proof text for the deity of Christ is because only God can forgive sins. Okay? So Luke chapter 7, picking up in verse 41 through the end of the chapter. <clears throat> Uh, this is uh, Jesus who's speaking. He says, A certain money lender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon, who this is talking about Simon the Pharisee, not Simon Peter. Simon answered the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, You have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, so this was a woman who was as, known as a sinful person, she had anointed Christ's feet with her tears and washed his feet with her hair. And so that's the woman he's talking about. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. 
you gave me no water for my feet. She has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, is agreeing with Simon. Yeah, she's pretty sinful. Her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much. And he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? So this wasn't lost on the other people that were present. And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. All right. Luke chapter 10, uh, verses 21 through 24. Luke chapter 10, <clears throat> verses 21 through 24. It says, in that same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit, talking about Jesus, and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Jesus is, he says elsewhere, I am the door. <laughs> he is the way. He actually says that too. Um, to the Father. The only way to the Father. Um, and he acknowledges this relationship, Father and Son. Okay, uh, Luke chapter 22. I'm trying to zip through these quickly because this being our last uh, meeting of the year, I've got to try to get through all of this stuff. So... Probably not going to wait as long for y'all to flip as I normally do, but I'm just telling you why. <laughs> okay, Luke chapter 22, 66 through 71. When day came, the assembly of the elders of the people gathered together, both chief priests and scribes, and they led him away to their council, and they said, If you are the Christ, tell us. He said to them, If I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask you, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. So they all said, Are you the Son of God then? And he said to them, You say that I am. Then they said, What further testimony do we need? We have heard it ourselves from his own lips. And remember, the charge that was brought against him for him to be crucified, one of the charges, was that he had made himself equal with God. This is him making himself equal with God. Of course, the other one was he claimed to be a king, right? And Caesar will not have competition. Um, okay, Luke 23, 39 through 43. <clears throat> this is in the middle of Jesus being crucified. One of the criminals who were uh, hanged railed at him saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. Okay, looking ahead, he called him a man. Just pointing it out. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. In other words, Jesus has the ability to make this thief who is hanging there, 
dying and literally, I mean in the most literal sense, can do nothing to save himself. And he says, you're going to be in paradise with me today. <clears throat> okay, Luke uh, 24, 48 through 53. This is the resurrected Christ. And he says, you are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. So he has the ability to send the Holy Spirit. That makes us very Western Christians because Eastern Christians don't like that idea of the Son uh, sending the Spirit. But anyway, then he led them out as far as Bethany and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven and they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. So, of course, this is spoken of favorably that they worshipped him. And, of course, Jesus himself said, only the Lord God is to be worshipped. Okay? All right. Now, <clears throat> that verse that... Uh, Kept theologians busy for the first 500 years of the church. John chapter 1, verse 1. And then we'll go ahead and read through verse 5. <clears throat> In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And then, skip down, same chapter, skip down to verse... I'm going to go ahead and say 14. This will be relevant again when we're talking about his humanity, but uh, 14 through 18, it says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him. I was talking about John the Baptist. And cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. And of course, according to the flesh, Jesus was younger than John the Baptist. So he had to be talking about something else. And from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace, for the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God... The only God, or a better translation, the only begotten God, who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. We've talked about this here before, but in verse 18, Jesus is literally called the only begotten God. We also see a distinction of persons, as the only begotten God is the one that's in the Father's bosom, and the one who exegetes or makes him known. So he literally explains the Father to us. <clears throat> okay. Still in John chapter 1. Now skip down to verse uh, 32. This is the uh, witness of John the Baptist. So uh, picking up in verse 32. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. Talking about Jesus. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. 
So what's implied in that earlier passage in 1, 14 through 18, is made explicit in John's testimony here. Uh, still John chapter 1. Uh, now skip down to verses uh, 44 through 51. It says, Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of, who, uh, of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you and you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. See how that title, Son of God and Son of Man, are connected there? Jesus attributes Son of Man to himself. That was his favorite title for himself. Okay, uh, now skip ahead finally to a different chapter of the same book. John chapter 3. And uh, verses 13 through 18. <clears throat> Still, well, I believe it was Jesus talking. I guess there's some dispute over whether this is supposed to be Jesus talking or whether it's just John narrating what's going on. I think Jesus was still talking. Uh, he says, no one has ascended. So what now? <laughs> well, and we know that can't be wrong. <laughs> I mean, if it's, you know, if they put it in red letters. <laughs> Alright, it says, No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And then skip down, same chapter, skip down to uh, verses 31 through 36. Again, we're, uh, we're dealing with John the Baptist's witness about Jesus here. He says, he who comes from above is, above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. Well, he's, he's saying he came down from heaven here. He must be divine. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard. He who came down from heaven. Yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God. For he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. But the wrath of God remains on him. So that's the testimony of John the Baptist. <clears throat> uh, now skip ahead to John chapter 5. And we're picking up in verse... 
16. So there's a dispute about Jesus has healed on the Sabbath, and there are some Jews that think this is not cool because you're not supposed to work on the Sabbath. So um, picking up in verse uh, 16, chapter 5, verse 16, it says, And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, according to their custom, he wasn't actually breaking the Sabbath. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So, <clears throat> Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. Because he's the image of God. He's the perfect image of God, as we will read shortly. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life, but presently has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. So, the same honor that is shown to the Father is to be shown to the Son. And the same power... Uh, that is possessed by the Father is also possessed by the Son. And this is Jesus' own words. Okay. Now, John chapter 6, and to be honest with you, I originally had this as a longer passage. I shortened it down to save on time. <laughs> um, you could actually just read the whole chapter. Um, <clears throat> but we're just going to look at John chapter 6, verses 35 through 40. Okay, it says, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven. Jesus said it explicitly. I have come down from heaven. Not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Okay, uh, let's go ahead and move forward now to John chapter 8. Even though... Believe it or not, I actually shortened this one too. What am I actually going to read? We're going to look at verses 31 through 59. <clears throat> I encourage you to actually go back and start at uh, 
verse 12, though, because that's also relevant, but just to save on time, we're going to start at uh, verse 31. So John 8, 31 through 59, it says, So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Of course, if they had listened to John the Baptist, they would have known they should not presume because they were the physical descendants of Abraham because God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. And here we are. <laughs> um, anyway, it says, Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. They answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You were doing the works your father did. They said to him, you were born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God, and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil. And your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and has nothing to do with the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. The Jews answered him, Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? They're, of course, going back to this whole born of sexual immorality thing. right? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. Again, claiming the ability uh, to grant eternal life. The Jews said to him, Now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets, yet you say, If anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham, who died, and the prophets died? Who do you make yourself out to be? Of course, they think they've got him now, right? Like, there's no way he's going to claim he's greater than Abraham and the prophets. But Jesus answered, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. So he makes it explicit now. God's my Father. But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. Look, kind, gentle Jesus would never. Yes, he did. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? Here we go. This is what we've been building to. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, 
before Abraham was, I am, claiming the divine name for himself. And they understood because it says, so they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. They knew what he meant. All right. Now, uh, where are we at on time? I am just going to list some of these out instead of reading them all. Okay? Because we are already running short on time. So, for the note takers, John chapter 9, verses 35 through 38. John chapter 10, verses 11 through 18. John chapter uh, 11, verses 3 through 4. And then again in John chapter 11, verses 25 through 27. This next one I'm going to go ahead and read because Ken and I were just talking about it. So we're gonna, I'm going to include that one. <clears throat> Did anybody need any of those references repeated? No. Okay, good. Okay, John chapter 14, and we're going to read verses 1 through 7. All right. Again, it's Jesus speaking. He says, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. You understand he's equating himself with God. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself. Where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life, no one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on you do know him and have seen him. See, Jesus, you've seen the Father. Now that's not to confuse the persons. Again, he is the image of the invisible God. Okay? That's not to confuse the persons. Father is not the Son, Son is not the Father. Um, and we'll see that right here. John chapter 17. This one I am going to include. Because this is Jesus praying to the Father. So this is the Son speaking to the Father. So much for modalism. It says, when Jesus had spoken these words. I don't think I told you the verses. Hold on. Chapter 17 verses 1 through 5. Sorry. It says, when Jesus had spoken these words. He lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Catch that. This is eternal life, that you know God and Jesus. Both. He says, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do, and now, Father... Glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. He's eternal. All right. Now, uh, I'm going to skip through these last two in John. Uh, again, John, it'll be chapter 18, uh, verses 4 through 8. 
Then John chapter 20, verses 26 through 31. You want us to read this one. Uh, Acts chapter 20, just one verse, chapter, uh, chapter 20, verse 28. So Acts 20, 28. So this is Paul speaking to the Ephesian elders uh, before he departs. He says, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. Only Jesus obtained the church with his own blood. So that must mean Jesus is God. Okay. Uh, Romans chapter 9, verse 5. <clears throat> Romans chapter 9, verse 5. says, To them... Talking about those who are physical Jews, physical descendants of Abraham, it says to them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, so he's human, is the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. So there you have the deity and the humanity of Christ in that verse. Okay, First uh, Corinthians chapter eight. Verse 6. First Corinthians chapter 8, uh, verse 6. It says, Yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. So, they're being equated again, basically. Because you're not going to sit there and tell me that God the Father is not Lord, are you? Of course not. So consequently, you're also not going to be able to sit there and tell me Jesus is not God. They go together. Okay, uh, Philippians chapter 2. <clears throat> I was going to include this in the one about uh, Christ's humanity as well. But since we're running short on time, I'm going to read this entire passage and count it toward both. Okay. So Philippians chapter 2, uh, verses 5 through 11. We're looking at the deity and the humanity here. It says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Okay, uh, Colossians chapter 1. Uh, I'm going to do the same thing with this one that I just did with Philippians passage because this one also speaks of both the deity and the humanity. 
of Jesus. So Colossians chapter 1, uh, pick up in verse 13. We'll read through verse 20. So he, the Father, has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He, the beloved Son, is the image of the invisible God. There you go. If you've seen him, you've seen the Father. Why? Because he's the image of the Father. The firstborn, or the preeminent, the idea there is not that he had a beginning. The Arians are wrong. This is talking about preeminence, not temporal firstborn. So the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created, in him and on earth, in heaven, excuse me, and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. So he must be God. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Deity. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross, his humanity. Okay, Colossians chapter 2, uh, verses 9 and 10. Colossians 2, 9 and 10. says, For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Like I could stop there, just think about that statement bodily, therefore he must be human because he has a real body. But dwelling within this real body is the fullness of deity. So he's truly God and he's truly man. And he says, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. Alright, I'm uh, no, I'm not going to skip that one. Titus 2. Verses 11 through 14. Titus 2, verses 11 through 14, it says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself, a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. And then Hebrews 13, 8 basically talks about the eternality of Christ. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Um, I'm paraphrasing, but there you go. There's that one. And then 1 John 5, 20. Uh, Hebrews chapter 13, verse 8. So then 1 John chapter 5, verse 20, it says, and We know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true. And we are in Him who is true and His Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God. Talking about the Son there. He is the true God and eternal life. And then I'm going to include this one, but i got to tell you guys, this, there is, this is a textual variant. So, if this was not what was said in the original, then it doesn't apply. 
I actually do believe that it was what was put in the original, which is why I'm going to include it, but in the interest of being open and honest, this is a textual variant, so do with that one what you will. Uh, Jude, verse 5. There's not chapters in Jude. So Jude, verse 5. says, Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. Who led the Israelites out of Egypt? Yahweh. Yes, God. Yahweh. Hmm? Okay, and then one final passage on the deity, or specifically anyway, the deity of Christ. Revelation chapter 22, the very last chapter in the Bible. Um, Revelation chapter 22, verses 12 and 13. It says, Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay everyone for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. At the beginning of Revelation, the Alpha of Revelation, chapter 1, God says that same thing about himself. So Jesus must be dead. So I think with all of that we just read and all that I cited that we did not just read, clearly beyond honest dispute, the biblical witness is that Jesus Christ is God. This brings us then to the true humanity of Christ. Okay, I cannot emphasize enough my agreement with Louis Burkhoff's comments on the subject. He writes, quote, Men have sometimes forgotten the human Christ in their reverence for the divine. Yeah, I think I grew up kind of, that was just kind of the culture. I don't think anybody ever said that or it wasn't like that. It's just we tend to put all the focus on his divinity there was very little discussion about his humanity. So maybe I'm biased because of my background, but I really believe this is true. Um, but Burkhoff continues, It is very important to maintain the reality and integrity of the humanity of Jesus by admitting his human development and human limitations. The splendor of his deity should not be stressed to the extent of obscuring his real humanity. Jesus called himself man and is so called by others. The most, uh, the most common self-designation of Jesus, the Son of Man, whatever connotation it may have, certainly also indicates the veritable humanity of Jesus. Moreover, it is said that the Lord came or was manifested in the flesh. We read that in uh, John 1.14. In these passages, the term flesh denotes human nature. The Bible clearly indicates that Jesus possessed the essential elements of human nature, that is, a material body and a rational soul. There are also passages which show that Jesus was subject to the ordinary laws of human development and to human wants and suffering. It is brought out in detail that the normal experiences of man's life were his. In other words, he was a baby. He had to grow. He had to physically grow. He also had to grow in knowledge. Um, he got hungry. He got thirsty. He got tired. He had to sleep. He had to work. Just like we do. Um, we are super short on time, so I'll get to This is what I'm going to do. Um, I'm going to come back to the scripture references last. Okay? I'm going to 
say my comments. And um, that way, if I just need to sock that off for y'all, I can do that. But I know we're going to run out of time because there's no way I'm going to get to all those scripture references. All right. This is what I want to do. Um, I want to take you through two historic confessions of the church besides our confession. Okay. Um, it is plainly obvious that the connection that the framers of the 1689 Confession have with the historic confession are going to be evident as we go through these two. Um, one of them is not a confession, but we would confess it. Uh, the first of these is the Chalcedonian Creed, or it's also called the Chalcedonian Definition. Um, and the reason for that is that it was produced by the Council of Chalcedon in 451. Okay, this creed reads in this way, and I want you to think about, uh, you've got your 1689 confessions, most of you, right in front of you, so compare the language that I'm about to read with the language that's in our Confession of Faith, 1689 Baptist Confession of Faith. All right, here we go. Council of Chalcedon said this, We then, following the Holy Fathers, all with one consent, teach men to confess one and the same Son, there's not two persons in one, okay? Like there's a divine person and there's a human person and they're just kind of somehow mixed and mingled. In it. No, yeah, this is one and the same Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, the same perfect in Godhead and also perfect in manhood, truly God and truly man. Okay, hang on to that phrase. I'm going to come back to that. Of a reasonable, or that is a rational, soul and body, consubstantial, or we might say coessential, with the Father according to the Godhead, and consubstantial with us according to the manhood, in all things like unto us without sin, begotten before all ages of the Father according to the Godhead, and in these latter days for us, for our salvation, born of the Virgin Mary, the Mother of God. We're not getting into that debate. <laughs> according to the manhood, one and the same Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten, to be acknowledged in two natures, inconfusedly, unchangeably, indivisibly, inseparably, the distinction of natures being by no means taken away by the union, but rather the property of each nature being preserved and concurring in one person and one subsistence, not parted or divided into two persons, but one and the same Son, and only begotten, God the Word, the Lord Jesus Christ, as the prophets from the beginning have declared concerning Him. And the Lord Jesus Christ Himself has taught us, and the creed of the Holy Fathers has handed down to us. So that's a mouthful to say that He is truly God and he's truly man and he is not uh, one person that's a God and one person that's man and, and there's also to say that he's not some sort of weird combination where the deity and the humanity mix and now we have a third weird kind of mixture substance. No, he's got two natures but he's one person. Okay? Now, I told you I was going to do this. Notice they say Jesus is truly God and truly man as opposed to what is often said that he is fully God and fully man because that's usually how you hear it formulated in evangelical churches. It's fully God and fully man. 
says the two natures are not converted or mixed with each other and rather remain whole, perfect, and distinct, according to our confession, rightly, according to our confession. It is not technically correct to say that he is fully God and fully man. And this is why. Because his divinity is not human and his humanity is not divine. Okay? Rather, the correct and historic formulation is that Christ is truly God and truly man. That is, everything about Christ's divine nature is truly and fully, and that's why that happened. It is fully divine, and everything about Christ's human nature is truly and fully human. That may be a quibbling over words, but that's what I do. <laughs> we have to be really, really precise when we're doing theology. So I'm not denying the full deity. I'm not denying the full humanity. Don't hear me saying that. Rather, I'm saying the better way and the historic way that the church has confessed it is he's truly God and he's truly man because there are two unmixed natures in the one person. Okay? think because we're wanting to emphasize that the divine nature is fully God and that the human nature is fully human. I think that's how it happened. Now, I don't know. That's just a guess. But I do know that seems to be the way that we normally formulate it, is we say fully God and fully man. And what is meant by that is correct. But the more accurate way to say it in the way that it was historically confessed. And even it says it that way in our confession, if you'll look, truly God and truly man. Um, well, in fact, that's what I included next was the quote from our confession. Our confession states it this way. Two whole, perfect, and distinct natures were inseparably, so you can't rip them apart, joined together in one person without converting one into the other or mixing them together to produce a different or blended nature. This person is truly God and truly man, Yet, one Christ, the only mediator between God and humanity. Okay, so that's the first historic confession. Finally, I believe the doctrine of the hypostatic union is summed up well by the Westminster Longer Catechism, questions 37 through 40, which is what I'm going to read, I guess in closing, because we're pretty much out of time. <laughs> um, I'd also recommend questions 12 through 18 of the uh, Heidelberg Catechism uh, for your consideration in your own time as well. But we definitely do not have enough time for me to go through both. Uh, Westminster Longer Catechism is questions 37 through 40, and I'm actually about to read those questions and answers. And then in the Heidelberg, it was questions 12 through 18. And I do like the way it's formulated better in Westminster, and that's why I chose to do Westminster instead of Heidelberg. Um, but I do recommend reading Heidelberg. Okay, so in the Westminster Longer Catechism, starting in question 37, it says this, How did Christ, being the Son of God, become man? Answer, Christ, the Son of God, became man by taking to himself a true body and a reasonable soul, being conceived by the power of the Holy Ghost in the womb of the Virgin Mary, of her substance, and born of her, yet without sin. Question 38, why was it uh, requisite that the mediator should be God? Put that a different way. Why was it necessary 
that the mediator should be God? Answer. It was requisite or necessary that the mediator should be God, that he might sustain and keep the human nature from sinking under the infinite wrath of God and the power of death, give worth and efficacy to his sufferings, obedience, and intercession, and to satisfy God's justice, procure his favor, purchase a peculiar people, give his spirit to them, conquer all their enemies, and bring them to everlasting salvation. Only God could do those things. Question 39. Why was it requisite that the mediator should be man? Answer. It was requisite that the mediator should be man, that he might advance our nature, perform obedience to the law, suffer and make intercession for us in our nature, have a fellow feeling of our infirmities, that we might receive the adoption of sons and have comfort and access with boldness unto the throne of grace. Question 40. Why was it requisite that the mediator should be God and man in one person? Answer. It was requisite that the mediator who was to reconcile God and man should himself be both God and man. And this is one, uh, and this in one person, that the proper works of each nature might be accepted of us for God and relied on uh, by us as the works of the whole person. I think that, that's a pretty good summary. I don't think there's any way to summarize it in just a couple words. Um, but I think if you take those two together, I think that's a pretty good summary. Um, this is how I'm going to finish this out since we're out of time. I'm going to list these passages off. And if you, I'm just going to do it really quickly. That way we'll get it on the video. And if you miss one, you can come up to me afterward or get it. Or I'm going to up upload this. So you can get it that way. Okay. Okay, this is what the scripture proves for the humanity of Christ. Genesis 3.15, which is the first promise of Christ. The seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. Genesis 22.18, this is where it speaks of Jesus being the seed of Abraham. 2 Samuel 7.12 and 13, this is where it promises that there will be a descendant of David who reigns on his throne forever. It's the Christmas season, so how could we not include this? Isaiah 9, 6 and 7, unto us a child is born, right? Okay, then this verse, probably read it over it a bunch of times. It's actually very important. Matthew 1, 1, the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of Abraham, the son of David, showing his humanity. And then you go from there, it actually says he's descended from this person, from this person, so on and so forth. So it shows his human descent. Okay, Matthew 4, 2. Matthew 8, 24. Um, Luke 22, 44. Luke 23, 46. Luke 24, 39. I think this may be one of the best passages. John 1, 14. Word became flesh and dwelt among us. <clears throat> John 4, 6. Jesus was thirsty. John eleven thirty five. John 12, 27. John 19, 28 through 30. Acts 
two, twenty-two through twenty-four. Okay, these two are very important. These next two, Romans five, fifteen. That's talking about the first Adam, Christ being the last Adam, in whom we have salvation. And this next passage is about the same thing. First uh, Corinthians fifteen, twenty-one through twenty-two. Galatians three sixteen. First Timothy three sixteen. Hebrews two ten through eighteen, and that's talking about he had to be like us to be a high priest for us. Hebrews five, seven through ten. And then first John four, two through three. Did anybody get bingo? Bingo. <laughs> All right. Uh, it was First John 4, verses 2 and 3. Okay, anybody got anything else to add or any other questions? Yeah. All right, let, let's close with a prayer. Okay. Father in heaven above, we thank you for our time together this evening, and we pray that you would help us to consider the things that we've discussed this evening, because there's nothing better that we could consider. Um, help us to think on the deity of our Lord and his true humanity. Um, help us to understand how that makes him our perfect mediator, um, how that secures salvation for us forever. And Lord, help us to respond rightly um, with lives of worship to try you and God. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.